to episode 6 of The God Learners, a podcast about gaming and reading in the mythical world of Glorantha. I'm Ludovic, aka Lord Abdul. I'm Jörg, and we have two guests today. Uh, yep, uh, we have first a uh, comeback from Neil Gibson, who was with us on the first episode. Hi, Neil. Wow, first episode. Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Yep, and um, we also have John Webb. Hi, John. Hi, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. <laughs> if people don't know who the hell both of you are, uh, can you present yourselves quickly? Let's start with John. So, hi, everybody. Yeah, my name is John Webb. Uh, I live in England, and I was the sort of the lead on the four Sandhart publications in the Johnstown Compendium. But I must say that was a, that was a group uh, sort of a thing that was not just me on my own. Well, you, you started it by yourself, like the first one you did yourself before it did the remaster, right? That's right, yeah. So yeah. I, I wrote uh, one and then started reaching out and people started reaching back and it became a, a thing, which was great, which is lovely to do. Yeah, it's nice. And Neil? Um, so I'm one of two people in Legion Games and we've put out our various publications on Johnstown Compendium and we're currently working on loads of other stuff. <laughs> Some may say too much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we do have something imminent. Um, we have a rather huge duck companion, which has got um, duck family history, four scenarios, a, a solo quest, uh, and a whole heap of... Basically, we've trawled through all of the canonical publications and have kind of tried to piece together what we have assumed the law and mythos is of the ducks mm. um, and have tried to put a, a bit more of a not necessarily serious spin but a less comedic spin on on the ducks themselves. Really proud of it. It's looking good. We're just working on art at the moment. Oh. Oh, yeah, nice. It's about 200 pages currently, so it's pretty hefty. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Serious ducks. Should be nice. The big news recently is that everybody, well, except me, maybe, has gotten their uh, RuneQuest starter set. Who's got it? Yeah. Yep. You all, you all yeah. have it? Yeah. 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 We got it. In Canada, like Canada is way too big. And um, mine has just started shipping maybe early this week. And mm. with all of the floodings in British Columbia, where there are pieces of the highway and the railway missing, I'm not even sure the starter set is going to make it anytime soon to my home. I don't know, unless it's flying. So, yeah, that's fun. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, did you... Um, did you guys get um, to play the solo quest or to like uh, uh, play some of the adventures or whatever? Well, from my perspective, I'm not allowed to look at the adventure book <laughs> because a friend of mine is is going to GM that. So um, I just had to put that to one side. I really don't want to look at it. I don't think I'll be tempted to. So I've had a good look through the rest of the stuff. I haven't played the solo quest yet, but it's all very lovely stuff. I love yeah. maps, so it's fantastic. Oh, yes. Yeah. I like maps too. What about you, Neil? I'm in, I'm in pretty much the same boat where um, one of the campaigns we're playing in, I think, are trying or going to attempt to do the Rainbow Mounds campaign. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I watched the Glass Cannon episodes yeah. with the first scenario, so I kind of spoiled myself there, so I've allowed myself to read that. And I had a quick look at the second scenario, um, and it turns out that I actually played that at the, one of the RuneQuest cons a couple of years ago when Jason Durrell was GMing. It's uh, a little mm-hmm. – it's a variation on what they've got in there now, but it's the guts of it are pretty much the same, so I've read that as well. Oh. And I was lucky enough to get a, a draft copy of the Solo Quest oof, at the beginning of the year, I think, and um, and played that. It was really, really good fun. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we have we were working on a, a Solo Quest um, as an aside, but we've, we've pivoted and put it into the Duck campaign because I think it's one of those things, especially with COVID, where people are struggling to do a lot of face-to-face gaming mm-hmm. and just to give somebody the ability to do some of those old-school solo quests with the new rule sets, really cool. Yerik, mm-hmm. uh, did you survive the solo quest? Yes, I did, surprisingly. Uh, what I would like to mention is that everybody can play the solo quest now because it's online. Oh, right, yes. Okay. And we put, put the link under the show notes. Yeah, yes. And there is another announcement that followed just after the starter mm. set uh, that you wanted to mention, Yuri? Yeah, um, they uh, made the announcement that uh, on 10th of December, the equipment guide is going to come out. And what they did, they posted the cover, again by Asichiekala. Looks wonderful. Yeah. And uh, basically, we see our band of pregents at rest after a battle. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm with uh, what I titled Harmaster's Morning, one of his favorite shirts. (laughs) As we can see, um, well, his armor is pierced, his uh, shirt has been pierced, Mm -hmm. possibly mended with repair, but it's still bloodstained. Yeah, the the, the heel spells don't fix your shirt, sadly. And uh, over here in Germany, discussion is whether uh, that arm movement Harmus does on the cover of the starter set is that wound or not. Oh, wow. <laughs> you guys are thinking way too much about all this. <laughs> That's very deep thinking, that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's going to be like the, the Ruin Quest uh, book covers cinematic universe soon being uh, analyzed. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, I've seen a few people online kind of go a bit meh about the announcement of the um, of the equipment guide because yeah. I think a lot of people think it's just going to be like you know tables of weapons and tables of goods and sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> it does have that, but uh, I've I got to see uh, some of Jason's script uh, at Kraken. Yeah. Yeah, and my and, understanding is that there's more to that, right? Yeah, at the very least, it will have lots of very nice illustrations, which will help you picture your Glorantha. Mm-hmm. And it does have a little bit more on economy, which is also, um, well, I wasn't that satisfied with the bit and the basic rules, so I'm looking forward to that. So, Ludo, you, yeah. you said you said that, that on uh, online people are a bit mer. What are people after? What is it that they, that they want? Do you get a, a feeling for that at all? Um, no, I think, um, like I said, I think it was mostly that, uh, they weren't too excited about a hundred pages 
of you know more varied weapons that are doing you know 1d8 mm. plus one instead of 1d8 plus two or, or whatever okay. and okay. Uh, because like you know the core rule book already gives you a good variety of weapons and you don't really need to have much else but uh, but yeah i think they might be more interested once chaosium shows a bit more of what's in there and shows what's beside just tables of inventory basically but I mean, let's face it. Most of these people are still RuneQuest fans, and they're they're gonna buy it. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, last bit of big news was uh, is that Chaosium Con, which was announced previously, um, Chaosium Convention in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in April next year. Uh, the tickets went online uh, along with the limited uh, kind of pre-convention dinner and discounted rooms at the hotel in which the convention is going. I think the discounted rooms are already gone, so you have to uh, pay full price for the room now. And I haven't checked if there are still uh, spots for the pre-convention dinner, but um, I assume that those are going fast. Uh, Any of you are going? Not me. I'll be busy, unfortunately. Yeah, okay. And uh, Neil is far, so I don't know. I am far. I did look at ticket prices, um, <laughs> but 48 hours travel Ooh. there and back didn't is not very appealing. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think we'll, the current climate, as they say, I think there needs to be um, yeah. Yeah, a, a much better incentive for me to mm. travel exactly yeah. uh, the entire way around the world. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, I am much closer, so I am actually going there. Mm. Oh, cool. There will be a hopefully a full report, uh, maybe like some special episode or whatever. Hopefully, if they if we can organize, if they do any of the um, the auctioning of the cool stuff, which are, they did in the Australian convention, yeah. um, give me a give me a hotline and uh, we'll set up a Zoom call so I can <laughs> I can yes. bid remotely. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, well, maybe there's going to be a Chaosium Con down under um, since Alpha Chaosium. There, is so down there. the kibosh has been put on that at oh, least yeah. for yeah for the next year or so from um, Mob. Yeah. They've they put out a statement saying because of COVID, it's not going to be, it won't be next year, it might not be the year after. Yeah. Which is a shame. But yeah, yeah, I definitely wondered about going because I'm pretty sure COVID is still going to be a, a garbage fire in the US even by uh, April. <laughs> but, um, you know, I figured that they are only accepting vaccinated people for the convention. So if I just yeah. avoid anybody else, it should be okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Kraken seems to have turned out fine in uh, that regard. Oh, yeah? Cool. So on to the main topic. Uh, actually, our two guests are the one who called the topic. Uh, which one of you? I think it was John who came up with it originally. It was me. It was me. I. Um, <laughs> it, it came off the back of listening to to you three talk um, about styles of play 
And yeah. I was really intrigued to hear the different styles of, of games mastering um, that we're all doing. I think that's, that's, that's what prompted it, Ludo. Yeah. Because, yeah, there are so many different styles of play out there. And it's just a really interesting thing to, to talk about and discuss and hear people's different ideas, really, about how they go about solving some of the, the more difficult issues that you come across uh, in RuneQuest, such yeah. as potentially, and I'm sure we'll go there, quite complicated large combats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we'll talk about specifically Game Master in RuneQuest as opposed to other Glorantham systems. And I think, yeah, RuneQuest is tricky because it's quite crunchy. On top of that, it has... Like to me, there's different types of crunch and RuneQuest has this type of crunch where there's a lot of different systems as opposed to, you know, something like say, you know, Fate or GURPS where there's lots of crunch, but there's really only a couple of mechanic stops and everything else mm-hmm. is uh, just um, modifiers on top. So, so yeah, it gets, it gets a bit tricky and mm-hmm. um we're going to try to talk about tips and tricks and uh, different ways to game master RuneQuest, Lorenta. And I think to kind of better frame the discussion, I'd like to ask you um, what kind of campaigns or what kind of scenarios you run. Like, is it a variety of stuff or is it, um, you know, a lot of, you know, dungeon crawling or, or what? So let's start with uh, Neil. Um, so I think it's a variety. So I think the needs still, I like to have different levels to the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, it does depend on your players as well. But for example, in the campaign I'm playing now, which is written by a very talented um, Johnstown companion author called um, John Webb. <laughs> um, it's uh, So what I've done, he's actually given the framework. So in his Sandheart series, the players play as militia. What I've done is I've got the four four books now as the kind of key elements, and then I've backfilled random encounters and things that happen as the players traverse through the world. So there is a bit of dungeon diving. There is a bit of you kind of wandering monsters within the campaign. There is some sessions there'll be a lot of combat. Other sessions there'll be a zero combat and a lot of, you know, role-playing as such so for example the last session we had there was no combat at all and it was more about negotiating with another militia group from another village Mm -hmm. and how they did or didn't manage to talk to them to get a way of further investigating without stepping on toes um so i suppose the answer to the question is there's no one type of of scenario that we run we tend to kind of mix it all in and just then it keeps it fresh and it's not just okay you're going to one dungeon okay now you finish now you do your roles okay on to the the next one i suppose john you're kind of the same oh yeah um i won't repeat what neil said uh yeah that's uh, very similar actually i think the only thing i'd say was uh, i think i was altered by playing call of cthulhu about 10 years ago Mm -hmm. um which did alter my style of of GMing and what I wrote, which means often there is some form of investigation somewhere in whatever I do. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I think back in the day when I was younger, I just fling creatures at them, uh, and I <laughs> don't do that anymore. And I think my my play group have have altered as well as we've got on, and they're, they're less about killing and destroying things and more about attempting to solve whatever the problem is, which may mm-hmm. or may not involve 
combat or conflict. And the only thing I'd say over and above that is the two things that I try and get into my uh, games is, first of all, the feeling that the players have total freedom. They can do whatever they want. I hate being real. I hate being railroaded, and I think so do they. And secondly, the feeling that any form of combat is intensely dangerous. And I can go on to that again when we get there. Yeah, I'm happy you mentioned Call of Cthulhu because that's that's my that's my favorite game, uh, and I I really strongly believe that you know either Call of Cthulhu or any kind of you know horror investigation horror game is really like almost required. Uh, game for any game master because it really forces you to think about the, the role of a game master uh, in a way that other types of game don't like it, it it really to me it forces you to find lots of solution to problems that other games have but don't really have as much of an incentive to fix like mm. mostly thinking about yeah. um, pacing and um, mood and mm. how a story progresses and all that. But yeah, I guess we'll uh, go into it a bit later. Uh, Jörg, do you have any game ongoing at the time? Or uh... Uh, Yes, I'm a weird mix of a railroad through um, a sandbox uh, with uh, people ignoring the rails. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as a rule my campaigns are very character driven which makes it very hard for me to use uh, any published scenario as it is mm, okay yeah and when you say character driven you mean uh, driven by their background or driven by, by their the players, background or? by their ambitions okay yeah and uh, whatever they uh, tread loose okay it seems to be that the new um, the new series of RQG, so looking at the White Bull campaign, it's very Argraph-driven, so it is very cult of personality. But none of the scenarios seem to have that running through, which I thought was quite interesting. You might see it more in the campaign, the Dragon Pass campaign book when it comes out. Yeah, because um, there's a lot of very key points in time that obviously uh, many people know about. So it's what... what we're struggling with in our campaign is well, luckily we're in um, Sun County, so we're a little bit kind of excluded from that. Mm-hmm. But having it as a, a large backdrop of things happening, so th- it does have an impact on the world, but you're not directly being um, influenced by it. Um, but I do like the idea of having bigger, big characters within the scenario within the campaign now whether they're protagonists or detractors or you know your big boss enemy i think is really important to to ground the characters into the world as well that's yeah. a good point um i guess we're you know already totally off script from, from my <laughs> yeah. Uh, notes but, <laughs> yeah uh but yeah i would be curious to hear because it kind of deals with the quote-unquote meta plot and how you know some people have no problem with it, but lots of people have big problem with it from what I can tell on the forums or even what I can tell from, you know, the metaplot issues that happened with the world of Narkness and stuff like that. I'm curious yeah. how, what are your views on that? So it sounds like, you know, Neil, you're doing it kind of the way I guess I do it too, which is this is what happens in the background if you don't do anything and you can either, you know, walk up to it and engage with it and start diverging the timeline or you can just, you know, uh, deal with 
problems locally and all of that stuff happens uh, above your head. Uh, That's what we tried to do. It's almost a bit of a a few steps removed. So in our scenario, and luckily from Nick Brooks' scenario, there's a lot of information about um, the hierarchy of Sun County. So what we've done is we've placed the characters underneath that. So they're um, agents of Vega Goldbreath, who's the leader of the Sun County militia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have El Belvini, which is the kind of opposing count. So you've got those two. They're working for Vega Goldbreath. There's a lot of conflict. And Belvini is then working for Argrath. So there's a lot of kind of trickle down. So they, they're connected to the bigger events, but on a much more granular level. John, how do you deal with the with the big uh, storylines? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> I can dodge that by saying that a lot of the things that we run are somewhere in a backwater, or it's 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 there, it's going on. So quite easily, really, uh, it's happening, uh, and we we generally know the big the big things that are going to happen, but it often doesn't affect the players um, directly. Did any of you maybe? Jorg has something about it, but did any of you actually got players actually affecting the timeline and really getting involved in big events and making them go another way, you know, on the saving Kalir's life or whatever? <laughs> Not for me, no. No? Okay. No, same. same. It, I mean, the whole your glance will vary, but there's, there seems to be some things that are relatively locked in but again it's you know it's up to you and your campaign i think i'm always uh, on the outlook for the butterfly wings yeah so uh, what my players will do will affect uh, how pevis is going to turn out Mm -hmm. how pevis is going to turn out is uh, going to affect how argrath is going to go across Mm -hmm. yes i'm looking out for that but so far they haven't uh, done anything to order argrath bigly I guess let's go back down to more of the everyday game mastering. There's a lot of subsystem in the RuneQuest. Like, for example, just doing something in the RuneQuest can be done in, you know, at least three different ways. You know, if if you want to achieve something, it could be a simple ability roll. It could be a roll on the resistance table, facing your ability against something else like a, a door strength or whatever, or an opposed roll. And then if you even go into not really house rules, but kind of BRP-ish uh, rules that are not totally called out in the rulebook, but you could have opposed rolls that require a certain number of successes or even the resistance role that requires a number of uh, successes. So do you have any tips for picking what subsystem or what way to do something in the rune quest for any given situation? Or is it just like, you know, depending on your mood or your gut feeling? So you started off with an easy question there, Ludo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it probably depends on mood. I'm very wary about getting players to roll again and again and again. So for example, if they're sneaking up to somebody, if you make somebody roll sneak 10 times, they're going to fumble. Um, so I tend to try and limit that because it can get silly. And again, if they don't always need scan rolls to spot things that anybody can spot, but I would say going back to try and answer your question directly, I don't worry too much about it. Just whatever feels right at the time. Mm -hmm. 
Neil? Yeah, at the risk of completely agreeing with you on every point, which I'll, I'll try not to. Um, That's fine yeah, by I me. Mean, <laughs> um, it's, it's the same. I mean, and again, in terms of tips, I think that does come from experience and gauging player feedback, like John was saying about getting them to roll again and again and again. Like tracking is another classic. You know, yeah. do you just roll one track? Um, generally what I tend to do is, even if something is not necessarily 100% skill-based, just a D100 roll, just to see the level of success, just to give, a, like you said, you know, if it's a critical success or just a regular success or a fumble, that can actually add quite a bit of comedy into the proceedings of somebody, you know, sneaking up on somebody or or something that's relatively simple. Okay, we had a classic example where, players were landing on an island which was extremely muddy. They were going to be attempting to sneak up on this um, village that they were trying to attack. So I got everybody to roll just a D100 just to see how successful they got out of the boat. So it was, you know, it's a very innocuous thing. You're not rolling against any skill. But what happened is that we had one player then who fumbled his role getting out of the boat, completely landed in the mud, and then that went on to affect him in the combat later on. Um, get, you know, gave him a bit of a negative. It's almost like a, a, a passion role, you know, where, you know, you're getting out of the boat passion failed so badly that now, you know, when you then go to, it, it just made a bit of a difference to the combat, you know, it just added a bit of flavor and a bit of realism. Um, about John's comment about, you know, rolling stealth, five times in a row and all that. I want to plug an article I wrote on the on the God Learners website about opposed roles and how to deal with ties effectively. Where um, yeah, if you if you tie and you know do you re-roll stealth until one of the scanner or the stealther uh, succeed and um, I mean my take which uh, I kind of was doing somewhat instinctively but I hadn't formulated this opinion totally in my mind until I wrote the article. And so now I'm trying to apply it uh, more consistently in my game is that once you have rolled, if there's a tie, then it means you're effectively tied on that particular thing. And so you go on to, to roll other abilities because if it's, if it's not just the stealth or the scan that um, determines who wins, then it's something else, right? Yeah. So, um, and, or change the situation. So it's like, it's unresolved. So you advance time and now there's, you know, uh, a new guard or there's um, some animals that get uh, spotted in the grass near you or something like that. Uh, or you waste time and the sun is uh, rising. So this is kind of how I deal with that. Um, like I said, more consistently now, although sometimes I forget and um, it's easy to just go like, I don't know, just roll again. <laughs> and then I feel well, bad about it 10 minutes later when I, see, when I figure yeah, it when out. Yeah, when they do a horrible fail. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, uh, my example for rolling again usually is climb. Yeah. I like uh, to have players roll a couple of times for a climb and I'm going to make it a bit like a progress track so they uh, a good climb rule will get, get them into a good situation for the next uh, step or make them uh, skip that step so it's a bit like combat really where you attack multiple times to overcome yeah. an obstacle and yeah. i think that's quite valid to do it well maybe four to six times in a row right in combat there is 
a resource though that is that you're um that you're making go down like you know hp or um, yeah or at least yeah. well some, a bit of choice as to you know whether you attack this way or that way or whether you dodge or block yes so i think i think it's valid if you kind of try to give that and not just climb climb, yes. climb. Right. Yeah. So uh, basically, I'm uh, d- doing this by theater of the mind and saying you found a good route, or that route is uh, going to, uh, to lead you nowhere, and you have to climb down again after a miss, mm-hmm. and only fumble will result in a fall. <laughs> right. And on that front, there is um, there is something to be said about, I guess, uh, extended contests. They're called in in the yeah. quest world, and uh, games like Blades in the Dark have made it very popular just because they made it look like a clock. I don't know if you've played Blades in the Dark, but they have this thing where you make a clock like a like a pie chart and it's going to be like either the, the quadrants of the clock fill up through time, like, you know, after each scene or they fill up after every time you fail a roll. So for example, it would measure the time before you get discovered while sneaking around the castle by the guards um, or things like that. And so... There is also yeah. some some fairly effective approaches there where counting your number of successes and failures counts towards some kind of countdown to something good or bad happening at the end of yeah. the scene. Which one of you doesn't use a GM screen? We only play online. <laughs> <laughs> So, Even before uh, before uh, this whole thing, you were playing online. So I haven't played in person for thirty years. Oh my! So we, I had personally had a big break for role playing, um, and when I got back into it, um, and this was pre-COVID, um, finding people who were in the same town who played the same system in the same style is virtually impossible so we use the the forums and the discord server to to find some players and actually yeah. found a, a few actually on roll 20 as well and yeah those games even two three years before um the pandemic were all all um electronic oh, i see so where I'm getting at, of course, is uh, do you roll, well, if it's online, do you roll your dice on your table or do you use the dice roller in front of everybody? Or So I'll use the dice roller. And in fact, that was one of the big worries that I had because dice rolling is very tactile. It's very, it's a big part of the game. Yeah. And I thought that would be a huge hole in the online experience. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not. Like, I really don't mind using the dice rollers on the roll 20, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody can see everybody's rolls. There's a, a level of anticipation when people are rolling. The lag sometimes adds to that. <laughs> um, but there, there's also the ability to do, you know, whispered rolls or rolls as a GM just to roll yourself. Some of those we will do. So, for example, um, what do we roll? Um, Insight Human, for example. Yeah. So I always will roll that and then tell the players what kind of feel they're getting about a situation. So yeah, because... you're rolling for them. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But for a lot of the other roles, like for example, you know, attack rolls for enemies, that will be open. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that most other roles will are open. Like everybody can see them. And I think that's quite important. Right. John? 
very similar to Neil. Um, I think every time, Ugh. I know it's every time. I, I, I think <laughs> the key thing I'd point out the way we play is when it comes to combat, the GM screen goes down because I've got one face-to-face and one um, sort of virtual thing and they can see everything. They know I'm not going to keep them alive. It becomes very, very brutal. And I think that <laughs> works for us. It might not work for everybody. It works for us. Mm-hmm. And it means that every time you come to combat, you sit up because you know the DM it can't save you, can't not roll that crit. Um, and when that lance comes down and it's a D10 plus 3D6, I'm not going to roll it behind a screen. And it does mean that players die. And it does mean that it goes the other way and monsters can just get decimated um when you actually thought it was gonna be a big fight yeah yep. and it does lead to the occasional tpk and i think for our our play the way the style we do it we love it that way and i think if i cheated they would feel cheated do you play it that way for all games or does it depend on the game i, I think we play it for all games um but i think okay. RuneQuest is the game where it it matters most because it's very brutal And I think that's one of the reasons that draws us back to it is the brutality of it. Um, and we've had, we've had many instances that you wouldn't get in a game like um, Dungeons and Dragons where they've, they've looked at a fight that they could potentially avoid and they talk about it for five minutes. And because of the brutality in which way we play, they actually go, uh, actually, no, let's not bother. Let's go round. And that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what you want. Uh, and I think that's, that's the way RuneQuest is meant to be played. But yeah, for me, I think it depends on the game. Uh, when I play some kind of, maybe some OSR game like DCC or something like that, I definitely, like the game is the game, I find, for that kind of system where it's all, yeah, dice rolling, the, you know, the, the dice fall where they may or uh, dice don't lie. So it's, it's very open. Mm. Or even something fairly procedural like Alien RPG where the behavior of the xenomorphs are determined by a random table. But for other games where it's more about mystery, like so for example, the Call of Cthulhu game, I would do a lot of roles hidden and I might fudge a couple because the whole point of the game in uh, Call of Cthulhu isn't the game. It's not the mechanics. The point of the game is the story It's the horror, it's the, you know, the, the atmosphere and the mood and all that. And so if the dice go a bit against that, I have no problem just ignoring the dice and, uh, or even not rolling the dice in the first place and just saying like, oh yeah, you know, the monster hits mm. or the monster misses or whatever. Because for that, yeah, the game is second to me from the... And for RuneQuest, I'm kind of torn because it's both very atmospheric Like it's supposed to be epic and and have this kind of very particular feeling, but it's also kind of an OSR game. <laughs> so the, the old school aspect makes me want. What to, is oh, what's OSR? Sorry, uh, old school uh, Renaissance. So it's like uh, you know all these uh, all these games that are flooding the market by. It's mostly the games that are harkening back to the original D and D. If you ever uh, heard about uh, old school essentials. Dungeon Crawl Classics, um, and there's a whole bunch of, um, even like Call of Cthulhu has the, the Cthulhu hack, which is a version of the Black hack, I think, which is also another version of the, um, of the original D&D rules that are, that have got, you know, repackaged and all that. So it's kind of 
bunch of people saying, you know, let's re-release games that try and capture the way it was back in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and and RuneQuest is kind of that because, you know, it's like, let's take yeah. the 1978 rule set and add a few modern things on it and release it. So it's got that kind of old school feeling. So um, <laughs> uh, I'm kind of torn between treating it as um, the game is the game or no, the, the epic story comes first. So um, I'm, I'm undecided yet on that. Uh, Jörg? Yeah, well, um, I have two sorts of uh, combats, really. One is the scripted one where the story uh, really wants it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, there I have lots of contingency plans uh, if okay. something goes wrong. And then there are the ones which are player-initiated and where everything goes and where TPK is much more likely. <laughs> So what are the kind of contingency plans that you use? It doesn't have to be the Deus Ex Machina, but it could be the Monster Ex Machina if the monsters are simply failing. So the second squad turns up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mummy shows up. Or the main antagonist uh, succeeds in the eye. Mm -hmm. So divine intervention is something that uh, named characters will do to escape the gruesome fate. Right. What if the players are headed for a TPK that you don't want because because that's not one of those uh, combats where you would let that happen? Well, there's always the atomic sleep bomb, which uh, means that the players are overwhelmed, badly wounded, but barely alive, okay. and uh, turn up uh, as prisoners. Right. Like they get ransomed or something. Yeah, so basically, uh, when the TPK is on the table, I may just make a cut scene and go yeah. away to the players moaning and recovering in a set. And I, I think it's not um, it's not too much, you know, GM fiat to save the characters when, logically speaking, there's a lot of enemies on Glorantha who would be more clever. And, you know, not kill somebody and ransom them instead because that's, yeah. uh, you know, it's less trouble in the long run and it's still good money. So it, it does make sense in many cases to do that. Um, and I was a human sacrifice. <laughs> it's always a good story to tell. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I'm talking to a couple of uh, Johnson Companion authors there. A small collection of scenarios, you know, maybe two or three scenarios about I'm in prison, I'm uh, forced to participate in a hero quest or, you know, all the (laughs) things that you might slot in when your players have badly botched a combat and got captured, you know, that could be useful, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the other way is, of course, to toss people into a hero quest. And then the Deus Ex Machina is just the Deus Ex uh, environment. Yeah, there's the Jurassic Park solution to where there's just a bigger monster, but it attacks the other monsters. Yeah, and uh, there's always a bigger fish, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, just uh, somebody scooping them up and possibly turning them into a different, very bad situation. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. one, uh, one way to do it. So the slide from the frying pan into the fire. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But uh, with a different uh, situation, the tables may be turned. So going back to, you know, roles like open versus closed roles and all that, there is also um, 
the matter of uh, who rolls things. So for example, you know, Neil was saying he rolls insight um, kind of secretly for his players. There is, um, in some of the newer games, there is a trend sometimes to have players roll all the roles and the GM rolls nothing, which is kind of interesting, a bit frustrating. Like when I GM some of those games like the Minera, it's, you know, I've got a big bag of dice and I don't get to use it. Um, <laughs> but uh, for example, I was talking to uh, Austin Conrad and he was saying in some of, uh, one of his groups, the GM would make the players roll some normally GM roles just so that they can, you know, hang themselves on it. So in particular, uh, the players would typically roll the hit location dice for the attacks that hit them. So he, uh, apparently Austin rolled the the head hit that killed one of his characters or something like that. (laughs) And so he doesn't, you know, he can't blame the GM. And so there is also maybe a thing about uh, having players roll the roles that would give that could potentially give them the most grief and so that it's you know it's like well you know you rolled it yourself it's the circumvent gm animosity then really yeah it it sounds a bit like you know your big brother holding your fist and punching (laughs) you in the face and saying why are you hitting yourself (laughs) that kind of vibe well or it might be a treat for the split party syndrome the split party syndrome? Yeah, uh, the party never stays together, so uh, the players not involved in this combat action can easily rule the opponent. Oh, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, um, what we'll often do, when, on the occasions where we've had very, very big combats, um, we've basically dished out the non-player character monsters to the players, and they've either fought themselves or they fought each other. So I'd give a, you know, a monster to to Harry, then Harry would fight Jacob and vice versa. So the DM doesn't have to hold all those monsters. Um, and I just remembered something. Like going back to who, who rolls what, often if it's a critical dice roll for a player to make like a sneak roll, when we're face-to-face, we'd get them to roll in a box. And then, you you know, the, the GM would see what that roll was and put it to one side. And then after the event, we'd then show the player what the, what the role was, whether it's a success or not, to often keep those roles to one side. Mm. That's a good idea. Thank you, Neil. Yeah, Yeah, there is often the, uh, you know, the GM move where the GM rolls and goes like, oh, wow, and then lifts the GM screen and reveals like a a zero one, which you can do very easily by, you know, rolling something. And then as you lift the GM screen, you kind of brush the real dice aside and you have those dice prepared (laughs) on the zero one. (laughs) Yes, you can be very sneaky. I mean, you, as a GM, you should be uh, sneaky. But yeah, if, if you that's, well, that. just on that sneaky thing, I mean, one of the downsides of just running electronic games is is the phantom role. So oh, you know, right. you're in yes. a tense situation, and you know, as soon as you hear those dice roll behind the screen, you know that something is afoot, and you don't get that with the uh, the electronic version. That's true. Yes. Um, oh. You, I mean, you can get it by just rolling, you know, you, in, in the roll 20, you just do like slash RD100. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. just yeah. Uh, uh, RD100. So they see the result, yeah. but they don't know. Yeah. They don't know. Yeah, that can be effective, especially if it's followed by a sharp intake of breath by the uh, GM and maybe yeah. some tutting as well. 
Yeah, but or, yeah, the, the phantom role is effective sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, or just the question: What was your scan again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's your What's your power? Um, yeah. <laughs> what arm are you wearing on your head? Yeah, actually, for a for power resistance roll, what I generally do is I get the players to roll a d hundred, and you know, I I know or I ask them what's what's their power, and I just vaguely tell them like you know, oh, you know, close but no cigar, or like you know, oh yeah, it's super easy. So they get a vague feeling of what the the power is for the um, the enemy. Mm-hmm. but not exactly uh, as opposed to because um, yeah if if you say oh, okay yeah you 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 cast that spell on the enemy okay you need uh, 75 or less and then they know exactly yeah so yeah same thing with hit locations for uh, and combatants as well so rather yeah. than saying okay well they've got one they've got one yeah. hit point left on their leg right. having a bit of a theater of the mind or you know he's that, that's he, he's been hurt he's hobbling yeah. um but he's still managed to holding his feet that kind of thing yeah yeah, he's you know he's dropping his sword versus like oh you know he's bleeding and screaming but he's still holding his mm-hmm. sword and and he brandishes it again. Um, so yeah, I suppose which kind of then kind of comes into the the view of well, are you playing a game of the rules or are all the rules there to allow you to play the game? Yeah, it's exactly. a little bit yeah. more meta, mm-hmm. but well, I mean that's that's what I meant before with the you know is is the system the game or is mm. the, so yeah it is definitely uh and i guess we should talk about combat since we are now fully in combat since we're talking about you know hit points in your arm and all that uh how disciplined are you with you know npc stats and tracking the hit points of the npcs and all that like do you have you know your npc sheets and you're tracking exactly or do you kind of half making up on the fly or do you actually completely make it up and you're actually faking writing stuff behind the gym screen? Um, I, I think me and Neil might agree with this again, but we'll see. I seem to agree with a lot. So I'm very disciplined. I'll do a lot of preparation on yeah. stats beforehand. Um, and I'll often say to players, I mean, I've just been, just been hearing what you've been saying, guys, and it's quite similar actually to the way we play, but I'll be marking stats down. I'll say, oh, well, he's still going, but he's close, you know. So, yeah, very disciplined, mm-hmm. have all the stats next to me and, yeah, keep track of everything really. Or or I get the players to help me keep track of things. And um, what well, I have to say, I'm completely opposite. Oh, <laughs> Uh, actually, no, I'm not. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, very, very similar. Um, there are there will be occasions, you know, for you generic mooks and you know fill, filler enemies, for want of a better word, that if you know they're down to a few hit points, then they'll they'll just expire. Mm-hmm. But for the for the bigger protagonist, yep, yeah, I'll definitely track tra- because the system is there, and I think that it. Personally, I think it works. It would be, almost be a bit of a disservice to not to not use that framework, mm-hmm. um, and it, it doesn't seem to get in the way. It's you know, it, and it also makes your life as a GM a bit easier if you've got everything planned out, and also for consistency. Because if you've said one thing to some players because you've made it up, and then you're saying something else, then it tends to break the illusion somewhat. If you know, if it's um, contradictory. I would just say, I don't think either, well, Neil can talk for himself, is I'm not saying that my way is right. I'm just saying it's the way that me me no. and my play groups are used to. 
and I think that all flavors, there's you know, there's there's sort of space for everybody to play in every way they like. It's just that's the way that we play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's almost YGGPMV, <laughs> which would be your your Glorantha gameplay yeah. may vary. Yeah, <laughs> because it, it really does. I mean, it, role playing is a social activity, and the, yes, there are rules, but it is, you know, it's a game with with no boundaries. So there are rules, but no boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I think there's as long as everybody is comfortable and having fun in the within the boundaries yeah. that they're playing, I think then you're doing it right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I completely. I completely agree with John that uh, you know that, that there is no right and wrong. We're, we're very much yeah. in love with each other, Neil and me. <laughs> yeah, Yerk, do you uh, do you prepare yeah. all your stats in advance and all that? No, not at all. Uh, I do have some go-to tables where I have NPC samples. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and I'm quite meticulous in assigning uh, what hits uh, went where, but. To be honest, I'm not exactly uh, that uh, true to say which uh, uh, which stats go with which uh, op- opponent right now. So I have that little bit of rigor room left. Yeah. Well, if it's one point difference between an arm uh, being out of order or not, mm-hmm. I have that rigor room. And the other thing is, I may have some NPCs uh, play possible. Mm-hmm. I think I might be I might be similar to Jurg. I have. The major NPCs prepared, so that's maybe you know between a couple and a handful for a scenario. Generally, more like a couple because I, I hate coming up with stats. For everything else, though, because I don't know, my games tend to go in lots of random direct. Like I don't know, maybe it's more of a investigative sandbox type game, and so I I never really know who the players are going to talk to, they're going to, you know. So there's a lot of NPCs that I have to make up on the fly. (laughs) And, you know, maybe I could have prepared them if I, you know, actually spent more time preparing the scenario. But, you know, I'm also French, so I'm lazy. (laughs) So I'm kind of like here, I would just like pick a template or like, uh, you know, is it one of those NPCs with three points in their arm or four points or five points? I mean, that's really all there is, right? And if I have, you know, their strength and constitution that doesn't add up to three or four or whatever I picked up, it's like, eh, it's just one point off. But once I have that, and it, it's almost like I, um, it's almost like fog of war on the NPC um, um, yeah. uh, sheet. If it's an NPC that I completely had to make up on the spot uh, and they are attacking him, then I'm like, okay, you know, you hit where in the arm? Okay, uh, well, let's say it's a four-point arm NPC. So you dealt, what, two damage? She's down to two on that arm. So I write that down. And then I write that the other arm is four because I just made that up. And because it's four, you know, that then legs is uh, five and the torso is six and all that. So it kind of like suddenly a few numbers light up on the on the blank page. Uh, and then it's like, oh, you're casting a thing, so um, you need to roll against his power. So what would be his power? I don't know. He's kind of like just a random farmer. So let's go with 11. And uh, I write that down. And so kind of it lights up. And then that by the end of the combat, I have like half a uh, stat block. But so I I track that. But yeah. yeah one other thing uh, I have been using is that not every uh, opponent is fresh into the combat. 
Oh yeah, so, that's good. Yeah. So uh, you can have them have some previous rooms, and that gives you some wiggle room too. Yeah, that's true. I like that. I'll use that as my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Just on, on those NPCs, do you have um, a method of generating names, and do you track the NPCs? <laughs> I'm always uh, jamming with a rand a table of at least 50 random names for whatever universe or setting I'm using because, yeah, like I said, I, I often have to come up with uh, things on the fly. So, yes, I have names, and then, yes, I track them. So I, I keep notes, and it kind of builds up the world, and especially if they come back because, you know, they like that uh, NPC, then he comes back and he gets more fleshed out, and maybe he gets a permanent NPC stat block, uh, and maybe he becomes a prominent NPC because um, that's how it organically builds that, you know, that village or that whatever. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. In in addition to names, uh, sometimes I also have a table of personalities or a table of thing where I can just like, you know, not even a role, but just like put my finger randomly at a place and I'm like, oh yeah, he's, you know, shy and he's fat or whatever. When I don't have an immediate picture coming to my mind. That's a great idea. And I think that's the tip I'm going to, I'm going to take away today. I, I like the idea of preparing names and, and personalities. I think I'm caught out sometimes that way. So I'm going to take that one away. <laughs> yeah, definitely with the personalities. It's, um, we, we had an incident, a, cu- a couple of instances in the campaign where last session it, we went to a village that was not, it was stable for John on in the campaign. And so there's, there's the very, there's, you know, half a page of information. So a lot of it had to be made up and they were constantly asking who, <laughs> even down to the stable boy. But, and yeah. that actually turned around quite well, that this stable boy that they had a good, a good rapport with. So that was a good conduit into getting some of the backstory of what's going nice. on. And also creating names for the owners of some of the, the homesteads around. Mm-hmm. I did have one that was, there was a belligerent old uh, farmer that they had to go out and see whose who's name, I, I couldn't think of anything. Uh, and the name I came up with was Boris uh, Janssen, uh, which for John would be, uh, might ring a few bells. It, it basically it was, Coming out of Boris Johnson, so nice. it was B- Boris Janssen. <laughs> nice, um, not a very nice fella. About like if if you print or have on screen one of those uh, lists of random names, I recommend crossing them out as you use them. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I actually did as well is I actually reused the player's name. So because you know some people have got the same name, so it yeah. was uh, it just happens to be the same person. Yeah, but then you also get confused. I don't know, but yeah. Sorry, I was going to say I'm extremely nerdy. I've actually got a an Excel spreadsheet of <laughs> all of the names and NPCs and a color coding on how well in John's campaign there are two two files. There are two militia groups, yeah. and yeah. I've got a list of all the farmers and color coded how they're um, interacting with file one and also how they're interacting with file two. I have so, the yeah, exact that's... same spreadsheet for my campaign. <laughs> you know, if it's a shade of red, it means they are uh, in bad standing. And if it's a shade of green, uh, the darker it is, the, the 
better standing there with that NPC. Yeah, I have that spreadsheet. Well, I'm impressed, guys. I'm very impressed with your with your geekiness. Respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got my card here. Yuri, how do you track your NPCs? Possibly I assign something like like uh, so-and-so and a numeric value. Right, yeah. So uh, if an NPC is recurring and has uh, is building a report, then he will get a passion and I will use that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Cool. That's interesting. Do you use passions uh, for NPCs, like for in combat and whatnot? No, uh, not uh, not as an augment, just as a behavioral uh, stat. I use it as an augment sometimes in combat. Yeah, I'm gonna yes, say, uh, you know, this is some enemy of your clan, and you hear them saying like, "Ah, oh, damn you, you." you know fucking yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, some barry or whatever and then <laughs> i make a roll and i show them like oh look at that i got a i got a yeah. special i'm getting plus 30 percent of my attack rolls yeah okay yeah. Uh, that's so, yeah. the uh unknown morale stat which runequest doesn't have but which we use as an uh, as a gm anyway the what stat the morale stat so um do they uh, do they break do they stand right yes yeah i yeah. i also yeah. i also do some kind of role for when they would flee or surrender or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah agreed. I do have a, a, a few combat tips that I could. I'm quite happy to read off again. These are things that I do, and um, you can agree or disagree with us on. Yeah. So I think we have two modes when we're playing. It's non-combat mode. People can do whatever they want, and nothing stops us. And then then. When combat starts, we sort of go into a, a sort of a, a round, uh, you know, combat round mode. And sometimes it, you have to actually say, stop, guys, we're going into combat now because it, it starts to blur sometimes, doesn't it? It gets a bit vague. Yeah. But when we're in that combat mode, uh, we, well, I try and ignore any non-combat questions because sometimes somebody will say, oh, John, that, that funerary mask, was it gold or silver? And I say, no, 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 we're in combat. <laughs> Let's do the combat bit. Um, yeah. I never do any roles for NPC versus NPC. So if there's six or seven Sun Dome Templars on your side and they're fighting whatever, I just narrate it because I think that's so boring for players to sit through all of that. And another thing is I, I have seen and I, I have done as well in the past is I try not to fall in love with my monsters because I've seen it so many times where people <laughs> fall in love with their bad guys and the bad guy becomes the hero of the piece and not, not the players. Uh, and I said, no, I've, mm-hmm. I've been responsible for that too. And that can lead to some funny combats when people do that. Uh, I could I could go through more. Although, can I just say, you might, you must feel that little bit of um, of a little part of you dying when you've beautifully crafted this. Um, we had this water demon. I was like, oh, yeah, they're going to get absolutely ripped by this thing. And two hits is dead. <laughs> My, oh, yeah. Damn it. yeah. Well, uh, monsters have mothers too, <laughs> like Randall. Yeah. Wait, isn't that the same monster but with a mustache? What? No. <laughs> yeah, it's just a mother. Yeah. <laughs> About the uh, rolling NPCs against NPCs, I sometimes well. Often, actually, I won't actually do all the roles because you're right, uh, John, that, that, you know, that's going to get tedious. But I often just do a couple of roles just to see, like, if I don't want to decide Mm. how the NPCs are going to perform, 
so if I already have an idea in my mind, then yeah, I'm just going to narrate it. Mm. But often I just don't want to be bothered with the burden of decision. Mm. Yeah. And so I would just like do a couple of roles, you know, uh, one or two on each side. And this would be like for the general scenes, like, oh, okay. Yo, so half of the young Malians that are with you uh, did pretty well, but the other half are uh, dying on the ground. Oh, well, I tend to admit it might just be my brutal way of playing is when the, when the players ask, how, how are our friends doing in combat? And I'll say, well, basically, guys, if you win, then they'll win. And if you lose, then mm-hmm. they're going to lose. So you can't rely on them. But that might just be a brutal <laughs> style. Um, <laughs> one other thing we do as well, just, just in case we move on, um, is I tend to yeah. give players different tasks to do. So one player becomes the fumble player and does all the fumble roles. One player becomes the magic player. Oh. So any questions coming to me about what does Dart Walk do or what does this do? I say, no, 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 Steve's got that. Ask Steve that question. Oh, that's nice. Mm. So all the players get a task. And and t- basically, I'd say that 95% of questions that come to me as a DM are not about rules. I'll just redirect that back to the players who are controlling those bits. So each each uh, each player has the rule book open at the yeah. couple pages for, uh, yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Because I can't cope with it all. It's too much to cope with when you've got six players and all those questions coming. So yeah. just hand it all out. Sure. Do you have any table rules around combat? And I, when I talk about table rules, I don't mean like, you know, house rules or anything. I, I'm talking about kind of like what you said, John. For example, I tend to limit players to, you know, a certain amount of time to make a decision. And if they can't decide or if they're asking too many questions, like, you know, oh, how far is that? Like, what is so-and-so doing? And what is so-and-so doing? Mm. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're spending the turn just, you know, dodging mm. and uh, otherwise evaluating what's going on in the in, in this. In Definitely. The- Definitely. Yeah. Some people will... Well, faff, I don't know if that's a British word, faff, faff about <laughs> yeah. or twat about, depending on how you want to put it. Um, and yeah, there just comes a point when you say, right, okay, so you're not, you know, you've got five seconds or you're not doing anything. I sound really brutal, don't I? I'm not really that brutal, but some people really can, <laughs> as I said, start asking bizarre questions like what colour are his buttons or or what what's the, you know, what's the door made of? He's like, no, hold on. What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> Come on, get on with it. Yeah. Do you have other other kind of rules like that around your tables? Uh, definitely, we do statements of intent. I think that's really right. useful. Yeah. And often, often for statements of intent, the bad guys go first because I tend to, you know, they're, they're often stupider. So I say that that dragon snail is moving towards you, and those two dragon snails are moving towards you. I won't move any figures yet. I'll just say what their what their intent mm-hmm. is, and the players all come back with their intents as well. So we kind of know what's going on. Right. Um, and what that also means, if somebody says, oh, actually, I want to change my intent, then everything they do is then at 50%. So they can alter an action halfway through or partially through, but they've got negatives to do that. And I do feel... Oh, you, us, don't, uh, you don't... Because I've, I've heard people who just add, like, you know, plus five strike rank to change your mind, but you do it by doing penalties. Well, I think, to be honest with you, Luda, it probably varies from situation to situation. Yeah. So if somebody's going to fire at person X and they say, well, actually, I'm going to fire at Y as quick as I can, then there's a deduction in their chance to hit. But but you're right, it might just be a deduction, a delay in strike ranks as well. Okay. Yeah. But I think, I, think, I think my main point is those statements of intent I find incredibly useful with people lay out every at the beginning of every round what it is they're going to do. 
How much battle map do you use? A lot. I've got loads of figures, as you can see. And <laughs> um, if we're using Roll20, we use the battle maps. doesn't mean to say we exactly measure out the movement, but once you've done statements of intent, you can bring people together and, uh, you know, right. um, you've then joined in combat and then we know who's doing what. So we do use a lot of figures, maps, a lot of, of visual stuff, actually, possibly more than others. I don't know. Do you always know where combats will happen or do you have a collection of maps pre-made for like, you know, a farm, a hill or whatever, and you always have one ready to pull out? Yeah. So listening to you earlier, Ludo, about, about your investigatory um, adventures, I mean, that does happen as well. Combats do happen where you don't expect it. Mm-hmm. But I think there are also locations where you almost are certain something's going to happen. And that, yeah. they're the ones that get mapped out in detail. And often me and other DMs in our playgroups, there's 12 of us in our playgroup, will literally map out big maps for a tabletop or I'll spend a long time mapping out something on Roll20. Um, right. But then it's a right pain if they don't go there. But that does happen sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you have tips for preparing those maps, whether it's like technical tips to you know assemble it or design tips to make the local interesting in terms of cover and obstacles and all that do you know i was just going to say something that's stupid like with love and care um <laughs> I don't, not not particularly i just think you have to sit down and, and think properly about the place really i have to think about that one a bit more okay. yeah it takes a while to do maps as yeah, you know ludo yeah. <laughs> yes uh and neil do you um we do use better maps again but it's mainly where there are Essentially, the scenes, for want of a better word, where you know stuff is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So those will be fairly meticulously planned out. Um, it, it doesn't actually come up very often that there's combat where you don't expect it because you can sort of circumvent it. There's no random, you know, wandering monsters where you suddenly need to pull up a, a random battle map. Yeah. So we're, we're really swapping because we're purely online. We're swapping between actual scenes and then we'll default to like a regional map when we're just doing yeah. normal discussions right yeah Eric? well uh, a lot of my stuff is happening out in the open so i either use a theater of the mind or blank uh, blank paper or what yeah. if it chases uh, i have to do some uh, different things right just mm. to indicate how the chase is going or yeah. where a situation eventually was the other thing is uh, clutter in the scene. It can be fun to have people balance uh, in a full uh, workshop or something like that, where stuff is just laying around and uh, making a movement or even combat difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody knows that uh, water we've seen from parts of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they make a good use of that cinematically, and yeah. sometimes it's fun to try to bring that into the game. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the kind of stuff where if you have the right group, you have players participating in that. So if you have a rather theater of the mind scene or a thing where even you have a battle map, but it's one that you draw on the fly, you know, if when I when yeah. I play face to face, I have like uh, whiteboards or uh, um, or just an actual battle map where I just draw using, you know, uh, dry erase markers. And it's just like, okay, yeah, you encountered them in some abandoned form. So let me draw quickly or whatever. And then mm. players, again, if you have that kind of players, 
they're gonna say like oh you know it's an abandoned farm so maybe there is like um uh you know a, an old moldy cart and i can you know jump on it or whatever and so oh yeah mm. yeah i guess that makes sense so you draw yeah. it and you kind of almost collaboratively build the combat um, mm. locale yeah and um, so it can yeah. work it depends on your players yeah right now i'm rediscovering sketch up for 3d models <laughs> yes Mm -hmm. And what I'm thinking about is using them to produce stills uh, where clutter is shown and people then just can use theater of the mind to grab that. Right. Yeah. There are very rare cases where it's like, yeah, I know this is where the, you know, the evil lunar sorcerers are, uh, have their hideouts. And so I will have a map of that. But apart from those specific places where I know a combat will uh, happen, Uh, the rest is kind of half-assed. And so I would start with theater of the mind. And then if my players are starting to ask many questions, like, oh, okay, how far is that? And how far is that? I'm like, oh, okay, okay, you know, take mm. 10 seconds, take out the markers or, you know, uh, uh, draw something in the roll 20 with the freehand stuff uh, and start uh, drawing, uh, drawing it out. Uh, and so it kind of is a half-assed battle map. Uh, one thing I found that is sometimes interesting is to use a map that is not at the uh, one meter scale for each or uh, um, so a larger scale map where say each square is five meters or each square is, is 10 meters. And the reason for that is that I mostly learned that the hard way when I was running some, I think I was running some GURPS fourth edition campaign like some post-apocalyptic stuff long range stuff often the range is much bigger than what fits yeah. on a roll 20 yes. or on your table um, at the normal thing and so it kind of limits the ability for those for those characters to be yeah. used effectively and so some of my players would get frustrated because they are firing an arrow and I'm like, okay, this NPC can move uh, how many squares? Okay. Oh yeah. He's in your face and he's, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. cutting your hand off and they're like, ah. <laughs> but yeah. when you use a larger scale, then they can, they have, you know, many more turns and they can, you know, fire an arrow and then go, go around the map a bit and hide between another tree, yeah. et cetera, and, and better play this hide and seek stuff in the forest. Yeah. I'm playing a mounted archer game, so think oh, about yeah. that. Yes, well, then definitely <laughs> you, you probably need even like larger <laughs> battle mats uh, for for that. Uh, yeah, and, and charging bison riders and that kind of thing, they get they get a bit annoyed when they can't use their lance to fill a thing. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, uh, but then a charging uh, bison has to be uh, accelerated to reach his target. And, and decelerated off the other side as yeah. well, so it's doubly, <laughs> doubly wide. Uh, I want to go back to statement of intent. Because one thing that makes my skin crawl when I watch uh, the couple of uh, rune quests, plays. actual plays or whatever, is when people count down the strike ranks. From 12 rather than going from 1? Uh, no, no, just counting them from 1 to 12. It's like, yeah. you know, okay, who's acting on strike 2? No, nobody. Okay, three. No, nobody. Okay, four. Oh, yeah, mm. John. Okay, I hate that. It's so much wasted time. Uh, mm. To me, the point of statement of intent is like, okay, you're casting a spell. Okay, you're attacking and you're charging. Okay, so you know the spell is what strike rank one. You're attacking. What's your strike rank five? So you can go. Okay, 
attack and then jump immediately to strike rank five. There's no point in like yep. statement of intent is meant to tell you yeah. which strike ranks <laughs> things happen at. So yeah. yeah. So maybe the strike rank marker where you put your token is uh, more useful than a map. That too, yes. Yeah. Um, you can use the roll twenty, yeah. uh, the roll twenty turn tracker also, where uh, you can just like put your numbers. The uh, the rune quest character sheet lets you auto add yourself to the turn tracker with the SR of your weapon or whatever. Mm. Only you, once though, which yeah. is a bit frustrating. Yes, but if you don't do that, you can still add a token and change the name mm. and uh, enter the number by hand and then sort it. So, I mean, it's a few clicks, but it works. But um, mm. otherwise, yeah, if you have an actual strike rank tracker at the table, that, that works better. I, I do have something to say about strike ranks. I'm not quite sure if I love them or hate them, but I can tell you how we <laughs> deal with them. And I'm yeah. not saying, again, that we deal with them in the right way. This is just how we deal with them. Let's say we've, we've, we've had our combat start off and we've had our statements of intent, and then we've got paired off combatants, right. you know, five party members, seven, seven bad guys. We will not go round using strike ranks all over the place. I will start the combat at the top of the combatants and say, right, okay, um, my, my enemy is six, you're seven, you attack, I parry, I attack, you parry. And we, we go down doing the pairings. Um, so we don't stick to one, two, three, four, five, six. The only the only times that breaks up if this if if a third person suddenly casts a spell within mm-hmm. into those paired off conflicts, so I've got to be a bit, bit wary of that. So I'll be right. very keen to hear how you all deal with strike ranks and that sort of combat. Yeah. Like when when you have different pockets of melee. Uh, yeah. So I guess yeah. I guess if you've got your statements of intent at the beginning, then you know who's hitting who and it, it's less yeah. of a problem, but it can break down. I can see Jörg's got something to say. I'm very keen to hear what he has to say. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, wondering, uh, are all of your player characters involved in combat when you have a combat or do you have a reserve which is uh, hanging back to slinging spells and healings and so on? So it, when you have the reserve, that's the time when I have to be wary about when their, their strike rank activity comes in because the, the healer might say, I'm jumping in to heal whoever, Bill. Um, and I've got, I've got to think, right, okay, so that's going to come in on strike rank mark nine, which means it's after the the, the the time that the dark troll hits the person who's on the floor. So there's a bit of interference from the yeah. support players. But apart from that, we just tend to go down the paired off combat one after the yeah. other. Yeah, I think it's similar for us. Indeed, if there is somebody who could interfere, yeah. then you kind of have to go down. But if if there is no chance of interference, then yeah, resolve that duel here, resolve yeah. those three fighting here. And yeah. yeah, because it's yeah. narratively better. Yeah. Now, this is where I do disagree. So we, <laughs> do you so say we... that just to mix it up or do you actually disagree? No, 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 no. I... <laughs> Uh, this is legit. So it, because we use the Roll20 um, Strike Rank Tracker, it is easier for us just to go down completely okay. numerically from from 1 to 12. Yeah. Um, and I also like the way that, you know, you are jumping between con- between combats because often what happens will have an impact on what is happening elsewhere. Mm. So if you see your Humukti get a short, through, short sword through the head, and you want to disengage from your combat and jump over and, and heal him before the mm. end of the round, then doing it that way, you can actually 
jump across rather than say, okay, well, that combat's there, then we're going over to this, the match combat. I'm not sure I would let the character realize what's happening to the humanity like right away. I'm, I would actually let the round finish and then that's when they have maybe, you know, a second to look around and sort of see like, oh man, the humanity is down and only mm. on the next round. But uh, but yeah, I guess it, it depends indeed, yeah. Yeah. I'm just shocked that you've disagreed. (laughs) I think uh, RuneQuest combat is supposed to be kind of chaotic and brutal. And so Mm. it kind of almost makes sense maybe that the the rules are, you know, there's so many numbers and the rules are so complicated that it is also chaotic and brutal around the table. Mm. (laughs) uh, We have disagreed, but I do think that it's, a relatively small point. Yeah. And that I'm still upset. I'm still upset about it, Neil. <laughs> I can tell you've changed your lighting to an oh, yeah, yeah. You can see yeah. that. Yeah, that's the angry red. Um <laughs> but the bottom line is, you know, we all do use strike ranks that they're a necessary evil to to manage that otherwise really chaotic combat. Mm. Other tips to speed up combat. There was something I wanted to write for the God Learners blog, and then uh, Diana Props uh, wrote basically what I wanted to write on the Beer with Teeth blog. It's mostly for face-to-face playing because Roll20 already does it for you. But when you play face-to-face, uh, when you roll your attack, just roll the D20 and the damage dice all in one mm-hmm. go. And then you don't need to go like, oh, what did you do? Okay, where is it? Oh, well, hold on, I'm getting the D20, roll it, and like, oh, okay, so it's in the arm. And how much? Oh, okay, wait a second, I'm gonna. So it saves just you know a few seconds each time. Do you have any other tips? I think I've done all mine now. I've, I've, I've burnt okay. out. Yeah. Actually, Diana <laughs> even went farther in her uh, blog post because she even has color coded dice, and so for example. If her players are facing, you know, four NPCs, she rolls four times, like, you know, a blue D100, a red D100, a black D100 or whatever, plus the blue D20 and the uh, black D20 and plus the damage. So she rolls like a whole ton of dice, like, you know, you're playing Exalted mm. or something. And then she gets all the results in at one glance. Just out of interest, was that four combatants versus one player? Because if that was in any of my games, they'd probably be dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just to roll faster uh, instead okay. of, of her rolling okay. four times yeah. or something like that. So it's mostly just to speed up combat. That wouldn't speed up mine, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, but then, of course, uh, you never know how many uh, damage stars you really knew, uh, need because specials aren't that rare. Sure. Mm. For a special, you just roll an extra dice or something, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, could be several, especially with high uh, damage bonus crush damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, true. So I uh, prefer to roll them uh, in sequence, and mm-hmm. I don't think it slows me down that much. Yeah, okay. I assume that some people don't necessarily want to speed up combat because for them, combat is this you know, highly tactical game. It's like, you know, if you're playing a war game, you don't want to speed it up because you're playing the war game and you like it. Uh, but if you, yeah, I don't know what's your um, approach to combat. Ooh, I like to keep it 
fast, but that doesn't mean to say it isn't tactical. I think if it slows up too much, especially if the DM's trying, it's forgotten where the fumble table is and blah, 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 it can get really slow. Yeah. So I kind of want to uh, have my cake and eat it. That's another British colloquial term. It's, I want it to be tactical, <laughs> but um, I, I need it to be fast and I will push people to, to speed it up. So I, I haven't really answered your question. Yeah, uh, I yeah. think you partially answered that next question but to speed it up often what slows me down is to make up my mind about what each NGC is doing okay uh, I would suggest that that's potentially down to the way the, your style and that you've got a lot of things that you don't know what's going to happen um, so that could just be it Ludo whereas for me there are random things that happen but I've I've looked at my enemies I know what they can do yeah I know what they're going to do so it might just be your style of play means you don't have the opportunity to think about, oh, I've got dual blade and dark wall, so I know what I'm going to do with it because you yeah. don't have the chance to think about it. I think I think it's also that I'm fairly new to the system. So yeah, okay. if, I've, if I've got dark wall and dull blade, I'm like, yeah, dull blade, I can see what I can do with it. But dark wall, what does it do again? Oh, it's what, brilliant. How can I use it? <laughs> uh, it's amazing. And, yeah. Dark wall <laughs> okay. and light wall are incredible. So, yeah. You're mm. what? One stumbling block for me is disengaging from combat. Mm. How uh, do I do that without squandering time and possibly playing against the rules when the story demands something else? Is that for players or for um, combatants, for enemies? For, for combatants, like I want uh, my big bad evil NPC to survive this encounter and to replace himself by some mook so he can uh, just take it on the lamb. So uh, that's my uh, my real problem with the rules, uh, that disengaging from combat is very hard. I would do so for enemies, I would use theater of the mind and just whatever. I wouldn't necessarily roll, but the disengaging would be if, if characters wanted to disengage from the combat, then I would refer to the rules. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, it's just frantic, hands up and waving like, please don't, you know, don't attack me. <laughs> You you wouldn't have players complaining that they don't get their attack of opportunity or whatever. Oh, they yes. would just attack anyway. My players, <laughs> <laughs> they would just, It's very rare that they can let anything survive. Unfortunately, right? Yeah. yeah. The only thing that I'm uh, see to stop them from doing that is: Do you want to uh, move the shield wall? Mm. Because mostly uh, these are these strategic combats at some narrow where you narrow down the front. Mm-hmm. And the enemies will do the same. Yeah. Which uh, also gives me the non-combatants in the second uh, fire. So do you, do, you, do you run a lot of big combats then, as opposed to like small skirmish of four pieces versus five enemies? Well, uh, there will be ambushes where thrown weapons and shots will come into the game. Yeah. Okay. Um, those are, of course, uh, quite deadly mm-hmm. if done right. Does anybody run large combat with like, you know, 20 Trollkin attacking and whatnot? Occasionally, but I would narrate that. We had a big a big fight last week and the players were kind of hanging about by the side as, as you know, about 40 men fought each other in the middle. So it, it's narrated. And if it gets really big and the players are involved, so say it was 20 Trollkin versus five characters, I would probably end out getting the characters to fight some of the help help me as as much as they can in any way they could um because it can get really tedious if you're not careful can go on and on and on we've had two instances so one was um we this was a game i was playing in and we did an attack on the pavis arm within the rubble 
um, and that went over. In fact, there's an actual play out of it uh, online on YouTube somewhere. Uh, that was a three-day session of combat. It was huge. But we, all the players were really enjoying um, mm. playing it. Yeah. The other one that I'm doing with the campaign that we're running at the moment, where I'm actually building up to um, a battle instance where we can try out the new battle roles. Cool. And that's basically with the two counts that the players are um, engaging with factions and getting them on or off side, uh, leading them towards a big battle based on what um, what context they've made. Um, and more just to, just to mix it up a bit, really. And, and that will be... Um, theater of the mind and some roles just to see which which directions yeah. the battle went and i guess there is a there is a blurry line between you know when to use the normal request combat and you know how big uh how big a combat has to be before you say like okay no more of these rules now let's switch to the battle um to the battlefield rules um, um yeah i was i just wondered i think because you've talked about death a few times um, I, I went to sort of more broader questions. I started asking myself, how often does party death happen with all your playing? And then I thought to myself, how many rune levels do you have? Because I often you know, that reduces party death because we have hardly any that get to rune level. Um, and then I actually started <laughs> wondering an even bigger question was, how many players do you have in your groups? Because that make, that'll make a big difference to combats. Um, my group's about six. Sometimes it can go more than that and it does get really slow. Six players? Well, we've got, there's 12 of us in our play group and we often split into two groups of six and then the players so actually swap. One, one GM and five players or? Well, sometimes it's one GM and seven players. It's very, it's variable. Um, yeah. But I would, <laughs> uh, let's say the average is five. So we've got two two play groups, one, one GM and five players and they will mix, they will swap about. Yeah. Um, I find four is really nice and easy on, Roll twenty five is just about manageable, and then six plus gets difficult. But I just, I just looked at looked at all your faces and thought, I wonder how many players they've got. I wonder five how many times my max ever. Yeah, like I don't okay. have more than five. Okay, um, I've, I've done about four. eight or nine before. Wow. I've had up to up to seven or eight, but uh, yeah. uh, it's not the number of players; it's the number of combatants which really uh, drags out a combat. Yeah, and players have sidekicks. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, that's another can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got six in our campaign at the moment, but the, that is probably more than I'd normally like. However, because of the time zone issues that we have, I kind of overestimate because there will generally be one person that can't make it in a particular mm. session. Um, and if you've got four and two people can't turn up, then your game's not going to happen. But if you've got six and two people turn up, then you can generally kind of muddle through. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. The missing player and the character still is involved in the scene. So uh, that's usually the character which is given to another player mm-hmm. to take mm. care of. And same with, uh, like, sidekicks like uh, your uh, trusty Alex uh, herding beast or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then that's uh, what keeps uh, non-combatant uh, characters in the combat. So uh, you have the Arnaldan healer who has a sidekick animal or somebody else's sidekick animal he or she rolls for, and then... Mm. Yeah. And it's, in terms of rune level and death, so 
Yeah, we we haven't got to rune level yet. We've only played in one game where one character's, and he that was a giant mini maxer who managed to roll a Humacti rune, rune lord right out the box. Um, <laughs> wow! Which you know is a bit a bit sus, but there you go. Um, and in terms of deaths, we in this campaign we haven't had any deaths. We had some really close calls really close calls and again in that kind of random death or near death that i wouldn't have expected so water underlands i've discovered are really quite nasty mm. and and pretty effective to use in an, in the previous campaign we maybe had uh, over a year and a half we probably had four deaths mm. Um, two of them were just general combat deaths um and now a couple of those did manage to di and to resurrect themselves. Oh, cool. One was a pretty spectacular first strike attack from a saber-toothed cat that impaled uh, and did a headshot. So this person oh, just got head off. Uh, nothing you could do about it. Failed DI. There's there's no coming back from that. No. <laughs> you know, and, and those things do happen. Yeah. Did they come back from uh, Divine Intervention playable? Because it eats your power like crazy, right? Yeah, well, in fact, this was one of my favorite characters, and it actually really turned them developed in a, in, a, in a particular way. So already, when they had rolled up the character, they had been driven mad by lunar ghosts during the libera- liberation of Paphis. He was fighting chaos. He was an Orlanthi ex bandit, so he was a bit of a bit of a, a nut job already, and got killed by this Rune Lord Brew. Um, resurrected. Um, did a really amazing role and got resurrected with almost full um, full power, like wow. it was a, like a one or two critical role. Came back, but we ruled it that he was, you know, significantly damaged by the experience and there was slightly more unhinged from that point okay. on. Okay. Nice. Austin the Barber was his name, due to the prevalence of headshots that normally come <laughs> I hear some groups, some play groups say, oh, you know, we've got four players and three of them are rune lords in this. And we've been playing for 30 years and we get very occasionally, we get occasional rune levels. Um, and then often they, you know, they just, if there's a shame in, he just to go off and deal with his, his, his um, tribe or so it's very uncommon for our group, despite the, the length of play. Um, we've probably had, I don't know, 10 rune levels out of, 200 300 characters yeah yeah i can't really say because i'm uh, fairly new to rune quest but i uh i wrote a um uh a three-part blog series on the god learners blog about experience checks and mm. uh everything that goes around it and the third part in particular i went a bit uh a bit nerdy there where i took out the spreadsheets and started graphing out like various progressions and I realized that unless you want to spend years before you become rune lord with your character, you better have a nice GM that hands out experience checks at least once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the rune quest mechanics are making it a bit hard to grasp how this diminishing uh, return of experience works and how long that tail is to reach the final uh, yeah. bits uh you know without getting killed by a saber tooth cat and having to mm. it again so yeah so yeah i think maybe you need to start handing out more experience like what i started doing basically is 
if there is a long adventure, which can happen because with an investigation sandboxy type, you know, mm. sometimes it's the same adventure for, for two months. And so now I actually go, you know, after a, a chapter in that adventure, you know, after three weeks, I'm like, okay, you know, there's kind of a pause there. Okay, let's do the experience check. So I think I'm more lenient than the rest of you on experience checks. I think I'm really lenient. Oh, yeah? Yeah, probably every every couple of sessions I just say, oh, you know, do your experience checks if you like. I'm quite, quite easy going on it, really. So how come your players never got to rune level then? Um, because a lot of them get killed on the way, I think. Um, <laughs> so you're lenient <laughs> with experience checks, but you're too brutal with combat. Uh, quite possibly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think... Even things like getting a charisma of 18. I mean, you, you can yeah. give somebody experience checks, but the, but if they're starting on 11 or 12, and if they're not mm-hmm. the lead in the party, they're still not going to get there, that, get to that 18 without really, really pushing it. I think charisma of 18 is easier than power of 18 because charisma of 18, you can you can get bonuses by getting some bling and getting some uh, saying like, oh, you know, I killed the big brew shaman thing of the mountain and... Um, so you get more sources of income, I guess, for mm. charisma than for power. My players struggle on things like read, write, fire speech, or whatever. <laughs> all right. Yes. yes. You know, yes. Yeah. Some of the cults well. like Lankermai and all that, they have a bunch yes. of skills that don't have experience sticks and they have to spend like two mm. seasons just to get plus 1% mm. or something. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's tricky. Yeah. Uh, well, um, my games, I think it's lack of ambition, really. The, the <laughs> player concepts don't really uh, say, I need to become a rune lord. Um, mm. My players often prefer to play the human side and not uh, so much the divine side. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, there's that too. See, mine are quite the opposite. Um, mine will roll up characters specifically with becoming rune levels in mind so they know which skills they need to work on Um, and sometimes you have to kind of rein them back in a bit and say well practicing bureaucracy you know on other player members is not going to get you an experience check (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, but yeah i think i'm fairly lenient as well not as lenient as john Mm. um but (laughs) in between campaign so i'm not rigid to the end of the season and what we'll generally do is you know if a scenario finishes halfway through the season i'll go through and do anything that's ticked then at the end of the season we'll do um occupational ticks as well so then we two two like one kind of rolling tick upgrades and then the Mm. other one is the occupational i think i would grant uh, an experience check for practicing bureaucracy on other players (laughs) Uh, to the other players (laughs) to the other players (laughs) (laughs) does everybody play with that seasonal play uh, framework that is presented in the core world book or is it kind of wishy-washy or sometimes i find it a bit restrictive sometimes yes yes when it suits is the is, is the quick answer um okay. and i think going back to what yog said is a lot of my players um most of them are not that bothered either they just want they want to solve the investigation rather than get to rune lord level so it's probably me pushing them more than them but yeah I, I am probably quite lenient about about all that experience stuff so if somebody says i want to learn my fire speech and i'll say oh, okay you can spend a lot of time doing that as long as your temple's happy with it yeah. but but to answer your question ludo 
yes when it suits and no when it doesn't. Do you ever have issues with, say, you know, one of them wants to spend one or two seasons learning fire speech mm. and the other ones are like, oh, no, you know, I want to do something next week? Well, he has to, yeah, they have to make a decision. They have to decide what okay. they're going to do as a group. I'm a bit of a timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, with regard to uh, how long does this pause between adventures last. And sometimes, well, the next season is just around the corner. And yeah. sometimes people have reward things to do, uh, which may require some rules, but not a gaming session. Actually, I would be fine with an entire season without an adventure. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Just doing the background uh, stuff, getting uh, social context on and whatever. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm quite lucky in, in the scenario that we're running that is based on John's because it gives the militia, basically we do a two or three week on and then two week off rotation. So I mm. kind of plan out what is going to happen in those three weeks while they're mm. on duty. And then the two weeks off is, you know, experience roles and yeah. narrative mm. essentially. Right. Uh, I've seen people on, you know, online say that sometimes their players have their nose too much into the Glorentan calendar with, uh, you know, with yeah. all the holidays and all that. And it's yeah. like, oh, no, we need to do this because it's my holiday and I need the rune points back. And do, do, how do you manage? The I was going to say, Ludo, we, 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 they're just about to set off somewhere. And so he goes, no, I can't make it. I've got to go back to the temple. <laughs> it's like, oh, my Lord. And then two days later, another one says, no, 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 I can't come. I've got to go and do this. So it it's a kind of a pain in the arse sometimes. Yeah. I know I've seen those votive statues you can, you can use to help, but <laughs> they, they just, to be honest, they just end up, um, this is another English colloquialism, tear-arsing <laughs> about getting to all the temples they can before yeah. they then go on their adventure. <laughs> yeah, it does get in the way in a way. Yeah, but it's time management. If they, if they don't make the time to go to the temple, then they don't get the room points back, and then that's going to be tricky when they have to face that, you know, Malia shaman with uh, with no cure disease, for example. It's going to be a struggle. And I did remember what I was going to say, which was just related to rune levels. I think the new RQG makes it a lot more accessible. You know, in back in the old days, Rune levels and rune magic was something very inaccessible, and you really did strive so that you could get your hands on that magic. Now it's available straight out of the box pretty much. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so mm -hmm. I don't think there's necessarily as much drive as there would have been in previous versions. Yeah. Do you have any uh, suggestions or tips for handling those holidays and the in-game time and all that? Or is it just, you know, you... You just sigh heavily and look at your players with sad puppy eyes and tell them, like, come on, guys. It's a good way of getting characters to a specific spot as well. You can use it to your advantage mm -hmm. um, and say, well, you know, okay, the link on my um, initiate, you're going to have to go to Pavis because there's no temple nearby or whatever. You know, you can kind of wangle it that way. I, I think we just hit on the fact, we realised that you can get a lot of, Bonuses if if you're in an ally temple, because because we're dealing with the Sundome temple and some of the stuff I'm doing at the moment. Anything allied to that also gets it gets a worship role, doesn't it? So that is suddenly clicks. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's not too desperate to get around. But I just think Ludo, because my players and I presume most players are very keen to get their room points back. You have to work with it, really. I've hardly had any instance when a player says, no, I'm not going. <laughs> like, they, you know, it's, it's sort of desperate to go and get room points back most of the time. And um, 
yeah. off they go. And then and then try and be a rune lord after you've uh, missed Holy Day three times in a row. Yeah. Try and explain that to the high priest. <laughs> do, do you have your players uh, sanctifying grounds for doing their own worship? Occasionally. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, because yeah, if you if you're a bit generous and maybe you know increase the number of rune points obtained from that, you can maybe mm. have them go like, oh, okay, you know, I'll worship on the road. That's fine. It's not um, it's not so bad. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe I don't know. Mm. And I know some people who just say like, you know, whatever. You get all your rune points back before the next adventure, and that's it. By the, by the way, the rules are written. If you if you follow it through, it's very difficult not to. You get so many bonuses for so many things you can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Usually on 150% worship chance, I think, or something crazy. So, yeah. If you dump a whole heap of power into it, yeah. the magic points that you're going to get back anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you if you can take the day off, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. There is one thing, since we talked about death and danger, do you have tips for managing danger? Besides just, you know, adding two extra Trollkin or having two of them suddenly kill over, uh, do you have other tips for making an encounter, you know, harder because you see, oh, you know, they're having too, too easy a time or vice versa? So that's an interesting one, Luda, because I think if if you come to RuneQuest inexperienced, it is very easy to either um, to make a combat too easy or too difficult. So I just 30 years means I can generally pitch it quite right. I do get it wrong still. Um, mm. Ooh, only 28 years to go for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say that things don't have to turn up all together. Um, that's often a trick you can do to, to scatter out things. Secondly is you've got to be wary that... I, I think I really reward smarts. So if the players are really smart, I'll reward them for it. Right. And your beasts don't have to be, you know, spotting everything, always, you know, mm-hmm. Billy on the ball about, about it all. So, yeah, I will... I'll tell you something I do do, because sometimes I find the big creatures in RQG just, just fall to pieces very easy. If for a big creature, I'll often just give it a lot more hit points just because <laughs> so it, it keeps... It doesn't just fall apart. It's what yeah, Nick Brook would call a rubber alligator. They just get blown to pieces, really. But <laughs> I know what you mean, but I think I can generally think, well, I've got five players and I know they can handle seven or eight standard humans and that's kind of where I tend to pitch it. So nothing specific mm. to add from me. I'm very keen to see, hear what Neil says, since I agree with everything he says. <laughs> what does Neil do? <laughs> um, so I, it, I do think that that is one of the hardest things to do as a GM, because even, you know, a fairly experienced GM, you could absolutely nail the the match between the characters and, and the combatants. But, you know, as it goes, you only need one Trollkin with a decent spear critical through the head and you're done, you know. It's very, very easy. And what I will do is, so not all monsters remember to mechanically parry and dodge. You know, they might just be a, a, a hitting machine with a maul. They might just go smash, smash, mm. smash and completely forget, almost like a mini berserker. Yeah. So if things are not going right, then I will, oh, well, he hasn't dodged or yes, yeah. you've hit rather than play it down the line. It'll be yeah. fairly, fairly fluffy on those aspects. Yeah, I think it was the the beer with teeth crew who was telling us that they just play the monster smarter or dumber. So, mm-hmm. You know, better yeah, definitely. Their magic yeah. or just like oh, magic? What's that? I don't know. And, mm. um, yeah, 
and, yeah. and mm. not use it as much or um, yeah, better yeah. or more stupid tactics. Yeah, mm. but even so, even with the most beautifully planned water demons, as I said earlier, with a fantastic <laughs> whip and all this room magic, it mm. only takes a couple of good hits and yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the yeah. problem for me is that I have no idea how to play monsters smart because uh, I'm I'm a terrible tactician naturally, <laughs> and on top of that, yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar enough with clever uses of spells. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? I think that's I think it's really good that you play like that because, of course, the focus should be on the players, isn't it? The players are the heroes, yeah. so it's great that your monsters are not tactical often dms will gms will overplay their monsters so i don't think that's a problem well at least uh they're um they're happy that they win often so yeah (laughs) in fact it reminds me of the scene from indiana jones with the guy with the uh, with the sword doing all the twirling and then the indiana jones just shoots him that is very common with a lot of my beautifully crafted (laughs) npc monsters (laughs) yeah Uh, The other thing uh, which I like to use is the whack-a-mole monster. Yeah, what's that? Uh, For example, uh, you don't get to see the entire place you saw. You only get the head, which (laughs) uh, will appear or will disappear for some while. Okay. So the combat situation is ongoing, even if uh, no combat action is happening in the middle round or two. Mm. Mm. Okay. This is where Call of Cthulhu is a way easier thing, because it's like if there's a monster, you're dead. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not not quite because you can take on some deep ones and ghouls, but yeah, if mm. there's if there's an elder god, then mm. yeah, yeah, you can sacrifice one or two of your party, and the rest may uh, make their yeah, escape. Yeah, mm. you're not you're not going to dispatch Cthulhu with a critical to the head. I suspect. Nope, not really. No. <laughs> What's a head? Uh, it's a fifth dimensional thing that only shows up in 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 smell. I don't know. So anyway, I think we should end it here. Maybe we'll have you back on the show because <laughs> there is a whole other topic. I think about running adventures and how magic. I mean, it, it's mostly for. Uh, my kind of adventures that I like running where uh, it's like investigation stuff and where you've got things like, you know, spirits and divination and all things like that, that can either Mm. enhance those kind of adventures or kind of break them in the sense that suddenly you have a shortcut and the Mm -hmm. players get to the uh, solution without going through all the stuff you had planned. Uh, So I'd like to maybe talk to that uh, in another episode or, um, Maybe if uh, some listeners want to hear about it, uh, they'll write to us, maybe. I don't know. Or should we can find some topics to disagree about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, any last thoughts? Any uh, clever words? No. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That's concise. <laughs> so thanks a lot for coming on the show. I think there was like a lot of good tips shared all around. So uh, hopefully mm. people will find uh, a few interesting things to take home. Uh, where can people find you and where can people buy your awesome stuff? John. Okay. People can, uh, can't really find me anywhere because I'm not really on anything, but they can buy my stuff at drive through RPG uh, by Johnstown Compendium. And yeah, um, thanks to all those people that have bought already. And um, yeah, I hope people keep buying because it's, it's lovely to hear people playing it, enjoying it like, like Neil is. 
Yeah, uh, we'll have uh, some links to the Sun Heart books and Neil. Um, same deal. See at Johnstown Compendium, we've got a few publications on there. Um, we've got a Discord server for RuneQuest as a, running as an alternative to the Chaosium one. You can find me as Bold on there. And also, if any of your listeners would like to playtest the Duck solo quest, um, it would be great if they could reach out to you and then we can provide that to them. Ooh, that would be nice. Good. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, maybe see you again for a follow-up topic. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for having me along. Thank you. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The God Learners. Our website is godlearners.com, where you can find episodes, newsletters, and articles about Glorantha. Reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via Twitter or Facebook at The God Learners for any questions or feedback. We are The God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. I'm gonna I'm gonna chuck my pork in the oven as well. Got to roast. That's, that's excellent timing. <laughs>